Would you turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to the book of Exodus? In Exodus chapter 33, this is sort of a part two of last week's message, Behold the Way. And this morning, the title of the message is Behold Our God. Behold Our God. In Exodus chapter 33, we'll be looking at the second half of this pericope, this narrative, in beginning in verse number 17. But let us read from the beginning of this book, this chapter, verse number 1, Exodus 33, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you also have found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. 
But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Continuing in chapter 34. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up to the Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took on his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood by him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, For it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. May the Lord bless the reading of his word among his people. Would you pray with me? God, let it be like we're on Horeb, on Sinai, that we might hear your voice this morning. Spirit of God, inscribe like on these stone tablets, inscribe the word of God upon our hearts. Father, may we behold you in a greater way than ever before. And may we never not behold you. And let us not behold ourselves. And let us not behold the golden calf or anything else. We pray that this word might do a work to that end in our hearts that we might behold you. And behold you through Jesus. And because of Jesus and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Don't you love it when you go to a restaurant and they're going to put something further on your order of food? And uh, for example, at Olive Garden. It's been a while, but I like going there when they come. the server comes to the table and they want to bring some freshly grated Romano. How many of you like that when they come with the grater to your table? And uh, it's on the salad and then also probably on your dish that you ordered. And, and they tell you, what they say to you, tell me when to what? Stop. And Jennifer doesn't have as much patience as I do. She starts to chuckle within a second or two and feels guilty as they grind the Romano and says stop right away. But then when they come over to my plate, 
and I just let them continue on. Jennifer continues to feel uncomfortable and almost wants to speak out for me, but I want it all. I want the whole thing. It's never enough. I love it when they tell me, tell me when it's enough. And don't you love when you're offered something and it's more than enough? And you find yourself chuckling out loud and remarking that surely whatever it is, it's sufficient. Maybe you're, you're a guest at someone's house and they bring you just a disproportionately large portion of whatever it is they just made and you're sure that you can't eat it all. And so you chuckle about it and remark that surely it's enough and usually you find a way to force it down. We were created... We were created to know what enough is like. We were created to know what enough is like. You see, that's part of our spiritual being. That's part of our spiritual nature. We were created firstly as spirit-filled beings in the likeness of God in this way. We were created to live eternally because God himself is eternal. And to behold Him eternally, we would need to be eternal ourselves. We would need eternally, eternity, to find that God is enough. That's how great He is. But here on this earth, we are prone to say that's enough far too soon. We're prone to say, like the server at the table that's okay, that's enough, and they've only turned it twice. It's just, we are satisfied with far too little. Our appetites are far too easily satisfied. Like when the server comes to the table and adds the thing, we immediately say it's enough, and I believe as Christians... This often is our posture and our unspoken words to the Holy Spirit in revealing who God is to us. We say, God, I know enough about you. I know enough of you. It's enough. The text that we have before us today asks us to ask this question. And I submit this to you to ask yourself this question this morning. Do you feel that you have seen enough of God? Do you feel that you've seen enough of God? Do you feel that you have seen enough of Him, that His, his glory is, is not really any more fascinating to you? Do you wait to feel that God is enough before you believe that He actually is? Well, in Exodus chapter 33, we find that Moses is in a relationship with God in verse number 11, by the way, where he records, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Now, here we do find, admittedly, a, a little bit of a, um, a contradiction, apparent, what we think might be an apparent contradiction, and that is, that we have found Moses says, God, show me yourself. And God says, no man can behold my face. But here in verse number 11, it says that Moses spoke to, to God face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And this simply means that Moses was familiar with God. 
Moses was familiar with God. Now Moses' life, at least from what we can tell, in becoming familiar with God began in the third chapter of Exodus in the burning bush experience. Moses has been experiencing some phenomenal, miraculous revelations of God all along in the pillars and and in the different instances of his interaction. And Moses in Exodus chapter 3 beholds God, at least his presence, in the burning bush. But Moses has walked with God now for likely uh, close to uh, 40 years, if not more, maybe even close to 80 years. And yet he is still hungry to know God. He is a man who is familiar with God and speaks to God as a friend. And yet Moses longs in this passage to know God more. Is this the condition of your heart this morning? Moses was familiar with God and yet he desired to know God even more. He had experienced the presence of God in the burning bush on Mount Sinai and even now he's experiencing the presence of God. But Moses was not content with the knowledge and understanding uh, of his present status. Moses was in awe of God. And listen, this is our purpose too. Your purpose. Your purpose. The primary purpose of your life is to know God more and more. There's not even something that even comes close or secondary in purposes. You were created to know God. I love how I recall when Cassia came to Jennifer and I and asked that we might show her how she could know Jesus Christ as her Savior. And then as I prayed next to her and she confessed to God, As a five-year-old with deep theology that was convicting to me, she said something that I'll never forget. She said, God, you had created me to know you. But I do not know you. And as she began in her own five-year-old theological depths to explain to God the brokenness of her soul and her need to know God through Jesus Christ, it was... It was a revelation to me. It was a reminder to me that yet again, this is our purpose. Why are you here on this earth? And by the way, much of the world is asking that question. Why am I here? God created you that you might know him and behold him and to be known by him. And Moses was fulfilling the calling of his life. Are you? Well, we see God's answer to his question. Let me see your glory in three parts in verse number 19 of Exodus 33. He begins by saying, show me your glory. By the way, this this word glory here in Hebrew is literally a word that doesn't seem so glorious. It is a word that can be used as a word of weight. Let me see your weight what fills you up. It it could be thought of in the way of measurement, like a scale. Show me the value, your worth. Show me the scales. Show me more of what makes you so awesome and wonderful and awe-inspiring. Show me your glory because my eyes are weary of beholding lesser things. By the way, is this something of the Christian's heart? Are you tired of looking upon things that that wither and pass away that are like a vapor in this world? This is the cry of every worshipful Christian. Show me your glory, God. 
I'm tired of beholding things that are here for a minute and vanish away. I'm tired of beholding pixels that vanish. I'm tired of beholding corruptible things that, that die and break down. Show me your glory. Show me your glory because my eyes are weary of beholding lesser things. God is saying to Moses here as he says, I will show you my goodness. I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. God is saying to Moses, there is one thing my people need to learn out of this whole event. It is that I am good beyond your imagining. I am good beyond your imagining. Listen, that is something for us to go back over and over. That God is good beyond our imagination. Especially when in moments of our lives, when we, when we see that God's things are inscrutable. That is, God is working in a way that we don't know. God, what are you doing? Let us be reminded that God is good beyond our imagining. Or in times when, when God breaks our hearts and we say, God, I, I don't understand I don't know who you are, but God is good beyond our imagining. Or when God takes away something that is precious to us, God is good beyond our imagining. Or when God gives us what we seem to be for the moment, a stone for bread, God is good beyond our imagining. And so we must remember that God is good, that the goodness is His nature, Listen, there isn't a part of God's nature, not a single characteristic of God. We call them attributes or perfections of God that isn't good. God is good in every way. He is good in His grace. He is good in His mercy. He is good in His aseity. He is good in His transcendence. He is good in His imminence. He is good in His revelation. He is good in His grace. He is good in His justice. And He is good in His mercy. He is good in His omnipresence. He is good in His omnipotence. He is good in His omniscience. He is good in every single way. His nature is goodness. God isn't just good sometimes. He is good all the time. And He says to Moses, I am good. That's what I am, Moses. You want to know what I'm really like? Do you want to know what the heart of God is really like? Do you want to press in to know what is God really like? Do you want to draw near and know God? Know this. God says, I will tell you that I am firstly, primarily, and all containing, I am good. Moses, if there's something you need to know about me, it is that I am good. The goodness of God is His nature. And Moses needs to know this because if God isn't good, then there's no rest. And since God is good, there is rest. But no one makes it to... No one makes it to the promised land if God isn't good. You could just take that down if you want. Thank you. But no one makes it to the promised land if God isn't good. I want you to consider that for a minute. You don't make it. Listen, you don't even make it halfway to heaven if God isn't good. You don't even make it one inch to heaven if God isn't good. You don't make it anywhere if God isn't good. And the people of Israel don't make it to the promised land if God isn't good.
But the second thing we need to hear from God is verse number 19. And I will proclaim to them the name of the Lord before you. I don't think my clicker is working now. I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. Look in verse number 19. This is how God responds to the, the question, show me your glory. Show me your glory. I will make my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim you my name, the Lord. Listen, God manifested His glory by preaching a sermon of Himself to Moses. Listen to that. I think Charles Spurgeon said that. You want to know the glory of God? Listen to the preaching of the Word of God. Listen to the Word of God as it's spoken. Read the Word of God. Do you want to know how the glory of God is manifested? It's not going to be by some angel who all of a sudden appears to you in great, great radiance and with great wings and strength and begins to move on your behalf through your trial. The way in which God manifested His glory, the way in God, which God demonstrated His glory, listen, of all things, was not to part another Red Sea for Moses. Of all things, was not to make Mount, the Mount Sinai tremble underneath the feet of Moses. Was not to all of a sudden inflame a, a bush, a burning bush for Moses, and say, behold my glory. No, listen, when, when Moses said, I want to see your glory, what did God say? I'm going to preach to you who I am. Listen, it is through the preaching, it is through the revelation, it is through the Word of God that God declares His glory. And it could be that your assessment of God of late has been far too dismal because you have been far from the Word of God. It could be that while you have mental assent and, and some emotional affection for God of recent, for God's glory, that your heart may be entirely dry and devoid of truly being in awe of the glory of God. And the leading factor into that is because of this, is because you have failed to look at how God has revealed Himself in His Word. I find it substantial. I find it significant here that of all the things that God could have done, God could have taken Moses by the hand and taken him out into the far extremes of the universe, out into galaxies that exist within galaxies. He could have taken him into the bottom of the earth and into the top of great mountains and again walked him through dry land into the seas. He could have shown Moses some great and mighty things, but instead when Moses said, let me see your glory, God says, I'll tell you, I'll show you my glory. I am the Lord. And he began to preach to him who he was. Listen, God's word will show you God's glory. God's word will show you God's glory. And may I also say that God's word is the primary means today for believers to behold the glory of God. That does not mean that there might be other instances where we can see God glorify Himself through the healing of the sick. We can see God glorify Himself through providential and immediate provision and answered prayer. But what it means as by pattern of Scripture and by the pattern of this interaction here is that God's primary means for convincing your heart that He is weighted with glory is that He reveals it by His self-proclamation. And so He says, I'm going to preach my character to you. I'm going to preach my attributes to you. Thank you. 
I am going to preach my nature to you. I am going to self-reveal who I am to you. Listen, who tells you who God is? Who's your primary teacher for who God is? Don't let it be your conscience. Don't let it be even a, a slick, silver-tongued speaker. Let it be the Word of God. Let it be God Himself who tells you who He is. And thirdly, in verse number 19, God goes on to say, I will be gracious. I still can't forward it. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion to whom I will show compassion. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion to whom I will show compassion. This is the third, the third answer to Moses' request. Show me your glory. And now God says, I will be gracious and I will be full of compassion. And Paul picks this up and I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to... Romans chapter 9. The Romans chapter 9. And I want us to unpack this because the Apostle Paul explains what this is like. And God, God reveals this to Moses as one of His chief attributes, His grace and compassion, even in its selection, its selectivity. God says to Moses, it won't be everybody who experiences my grace. It won't be everybody who experiences my compassion. It will be only upon those who I will it to be upon. And God seems quite comfortable to, to present this as a means of, of drawing worship to Himself. Of a means of revealing His glory. Now you're going to have to follow along along the argumentation of the Apostle Paul because the Apostle Paul seeks to drive you to a place of utter awe and worship that God would set His grace upon you of all people. None of us should be sitting here this morning. Not a single one of us should be sitting here. And I don't mean that you should be just sitting in your living room, but all of us should be banished by the wrath of God away from God's presence today. None of us deserve another breath in our lungs. And that's the Apostle Paul's instruction in Romans 9. Just as God had set Israel apart for God's choosing for God's purposes and yes, even for their deliverance and their salvation, so too He has granted mercy upon those who He will grant mercy upon. And so, in verse number 14, Romans chapter 9, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part that He would have just chosen Israel? By no means. For He says to Moses, Okay, so the Apostle Paul is recalling Exodus 33. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power to you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Will you say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, a man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like that? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honor 
or for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed He says in Hosea. And so he explains here that God is sovereign. And if in God's mercy he shows compassion on whom he will show compassion, then that is no reflection on his character in any arbitrary way. God demonstrates that he has a will that is not um, short-armed or twisted. He is not obligated to anybody. Because God is not obligated to anybody that you and I should receive this salvation and the riches and the righteousness of Jesus Christ appropriated to us ought to make us marvel. And this is how God demonstrates His glory to Moses. says, Moses, of my own will, without anybody scheming or manipulating, I have set my love upon you. He says so today to you and I. And so, God is bound by no one and He is absolutely free to show His mercy and grace to whomever He chooses to. But turn with me to John 17 as we recognize that Jesus, who would be a greater mediator than the Apostle Paul, Jesus prayed that you and I would be able to behold God in a greater way than Moses We would need a a better mediator. We would need a greater mediator than Moses. We would need Jesus to come in and show us something of God that we could not see of ourselves. In 17, John 17, and what's known as the priestly prayer of Jesus in verse number 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. By the way, that's you and I. I love that passage. That's me. Verse 20 that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as you, as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may perfectly become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Do you see that there? That they may see my glory. Brother and sister in the Lord, you may not know the glory of the Father, may not be able to comprehend it like Moses was not able to either. But because of Jesus, we may see the glory of God. Why would we desire to see the glory of God like Moses? Why should we desire to see God's glory? You say, why can't I just go on living my life? I'm a Christian, follower of Christ, but why should I desire to see the glory of God? Well, first of all, we find that it's actually part of Jesus' prayer 
that you would have the blessed experience of beholding the glory of God. But also because we have a journey to take and the stakes are high. Moses knows there's much more road that's ahead of them and he wants to know of God's glory. We have a journey to take and the stakes are high. Thirdly, that we must cast our eyes away from lesser things into the greater. Lord, rescue me from beholding the glory, a very small glory, of things that make themselves glorious to me or things that I make glorious in my life. Things that I assign weight to and worthiness to. Oh God, spare me, rescue me, assigning glory unto lesser things. Because we should know that His grace has been set on us and we are grateful. We should desire to see God's glory because He has set His grace upon us and we want to respond with gratitude. And then fifthly, because we are created and redeemed to be drawn to behold the glory of God. Why do we want more? Why, do we tell, why don't we tell the server to stop grinding the Romano? Because we were made to behold more. Because on this earth enough is never enough. But with God it is always enough. God is enough. God is enough. So how do we ask this? How do we pray like Moses? How do we say, God, I want to behold your glory. How do we say this? We, we say, God, I want to see your glory. I want to see your glory manifested in, in this part of my life and in this part of my ventures and my ambition. How do, we, how do we get there? Well, number one, we pray. We pray. Ask yourself these questions this morning in, in reflection of this passage. Do you pray in such a way that you desire God to be glorified? by the answering of this prayer? Or is your prayer just so immediately satisfied? God, I pray that in this way you would be glorified, that you would bring this provision, and in that so be glorified. But first of all, it's so profound and simple. Pray. There's so much keeping us from beholding the glory of God, but one of the easiest steps, the simplest steps that we could take to behold the glory of God is to simply begin the conversation in prayer. Secondly, look at his self-revelation. Look at his self-revelation, yes, in the word of God. How do we, like Moses, say, show me your glory? Well, in this passage, God reveals who he is and he preaches who he is. Listen, the word of God is God's perfect self-revelation. You want to see the glory of God? Open your Bible and read it. And while reading the word, say, God, help me to see that you're enough. Maybe one reason why 
we do not see God's glory and we do not consider him to be enough is because we have never just said, God, help me. My loves, my passions, my appetites are far too small. Rescue me from saying it's enough. Rescue me from the the grips of those things that I hold so tightly. Open my hands, Lord, from the things of this world. Number three, respond to the revelation like in chapter 34. Then when God passed by, Moses, the Bible says, quickly bowed his knees. When you see God's glory, when you see God's goodness, do you stop to worship? Do you stop to revel? Do you contemplate? Do you take time to consider the glory of God? And fourthly, seek His presence. Do you pray to God as if He's far away, but do not enjoy His nearness? Moses is very familiar with God. He sees God face to face, doesn't he? And so he's not ashamed to say, God, show me more. Pray to God like he's near. Because he is. Fifthly, oft times when we see God for who he is, we recognize how undone we are. And that's what happens to Moses in chapter 34. After he worships, he bows his knee. He says, God, I know that you cannot stand to be amidst the people who are stiff-necked, and I'm one of them. But forgive us of our iniquities, because this is part of who you are. Cleanse us. When we have a right view of God, then we will have a right view of ourselves and our sin. You say, I, I wish I had a tender conscience. I remember when I did. I wish I had assurance of cleansing and forgiveness. I feel so weighed down by guilt. My friends, sometimes getting to forgiveness begins with worship. Begin with recalling and revealing and receiving God's revelation of who He is. Just let God speak to you about who He is. God has a way of breaking your heart over who you are. Comes to you with sweet cleansing and renewal. But sometimes, really even unexpectedly. And lastly, he says, Lord, we want to be yours. We want to be your inheritance. We want to be the people that you own. And Moses says he wants the people of God to be his inheritance. That means that he has set his worth and value on them. Lord, do not whisk us away like you did the Egyptians and sweep us away under the waters of the Red Sea. But set your value upon us. And the value of Israel is not readily seen because for one thing at this time, they're not wearing gold anymore. They're not wearing the robes that they had spoiled the Egyptians. Now the Israel looks like a bunch of wandering nomads, truly. Likely wearing something like sackcloth now, no earrings and no robes. 
They were not a sight to behold, so their value is not readily seen. But what gives you value? How does a Christian assess their value? How do you and I know that we are valuable to God? Oh yes, we're a created being, intentionally, purposely created. But what is it that Moses says has created the value? Why should the people of God become the inheritance of God? It's because the weight of the glory of God's mercy rests upon them. Christian, child of God, the mercy of God makes you legacy material. The mercy of God is what brings value and worth into your life. God places His worth, His glory through Jesus Christ upon you. Moses is on his knees and says, God, I recognize that we are of no value if we do not have your mercy. Listen, whoever is listening to here this morning, I don't know the condition of your heart, but God has great value to assign to you, to, to pour upon you, to deposit into your account through Jesus Christ. It's a value that's called mercy. And yes, while undeserving, that's what qualified you to receive this mercy. Just like Israel, who Moses said, these people don't deserve your mercy, he says, but God, what will make them your inheritance will be mercy. Listen, what makes you worthy unto God is your unworthiness. Will you receive that? Believer, will you pray? Will you give of yourself unto God's self-revelation? Will you draw near to God in His immediate presence, not just His transcendence, but His imminence, His nearness? Will you seek His presence? Will you say to God, help, help me see that You're enough. Loosen my grip on the things that are not. Will you seek His cleansing and forgiveness? And will you seek to be owned and to revel in being owned? Well, let's pray together this morning.